So family resemblance is a funny thing, right? Um, just this summer, my wife and I were privileged to be able to travel to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, where one of my cousins uh, was getting married. Uh, and my, my dad's from Pittsburgh. My, my grandparents on his side still live there uh, in the home he grew up in. Um, so one of the things we got to do while we were on the trip is we got to look at a bunch of old pictures. And I found one of my dad when he must have been like seven or eight years old. It's an old black and white photo of him and his lawn. And I'll tell you what, if you had a picture of me when I was that age and you took me out of it and you stuck me in that picture and made it black and white, it would be indistinguishable. Like there's no way you'd be able to tell the difference. Uh, Katie, just this morning, uh, her mom's here as well. She didn't even have to introduce herself. Somebody came up, you must be Katie's mom. I can see the resemblance. So this morning, we are going to see that Jesus makes an important, profound theological point based on resemblances, based on resemblances. Um, so you may remember uh, from last week where we are in the story here. It is Holy Week. Uh, it is Wednesday. So the previous Sunday, Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding on the back of that donkey. Uh, and the people welcomed him. And since then, he had kind of just been hanging around the temple, uh, teaching large groups of people who were excited to come and hear what the Messiah had to say. Uh, now, remember, they were expecting a political sort of Messiah. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later. Uh, but the crucifixion is going to happen in just two days. Uh, but meanwhile, Jesus is teaching people in the temple. And the religious leaders who don't like Jesus... Uh, because they're jealous of him, are coming and they are trying to debate with him. Uh, last week we learned that they tried to ask him a question and he asked them a question back and they got stumped. Uh, and Jesus then went on to tell a parable that basically said, y'all are not doing the right thing. You are not listening to God's servant. God is about to kick you out and replace you with somebody else. All right. And now we know... Parables are very confusing things. Uh, so the, the people, when, when Jesus told them this parable, warning them, uh, it was too confusing for them to understand, right? They didn't get it? No, in this text we see this morning, uh, they understood that Jesus spoke this parable against them. So they got it. They knew he's saying, I'm the Messiah. Y'all are not doing the right thing. Y'all are about to be kicked out, and God's going to replace you with somebody else. So they got it. Um, but instead of repenting from their sins, they decided that they were going to double down and they were going to keep trying to oppose Jesus. Now, the irony there is that because they did that, they fulfilled the parable that Jesus told against them. What are you going to do? So having just failed to try to debate Jesus face to face, they decided that they were going to send some spies to pretend to be Jesus' followers to ask him a question all right, to try to get him arrested. Now, the, the text this morning says that they were pretending to be righteous. What that means is that they were pretending to be sincere. They were going to come up, Jesus, we love you. We think you're great, uh, and we want you to answer this question for us. So listen here in verse 21, what they say. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and that you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. That's so sweet of them to say that, right? Students, if you are looking for a good way to address me on Wednesday night, this is it. Start with this. Uh, if, if, do we have any teachers in the audience? Anybody teach? Okay, so you have my permission. Put this verse on the wall, 
All right, the Bible says this is how you have to talk to me. All right, this is what I want you to start. Before you ask if you can go to the bathroom, I want you to say this. All right, no. What they're trying to do is they're trying to disarm Jesus. They're trying to get him off his guard so that he'll just say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they'll get him arrested. So let's um, take a look at the question they ask. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Here's what you need to know about this question. Uh, number one, the taxes were pretty heavy back then. Uh, some estimates maybe as high as 40%. Um, so not a little, not a little. Uh, number two, this question isn't just about just anybody paying taxes to any government. This is about the Jewish people specifically, God's chosen people paying taxes, taxes to a very pagan Roman government. All right. So the Jews um, resented the fact uh, that Rome ruled over them. They wanted to be their own state. Uh, they wanted to be their own people. Number three, uh, this was a legitimate question at the time. This is not something that they just made up to try to stump Jesus. This is something that people were actually talking about and maybe debating about uh, in Jesus' day. So this would have been something that the people were really wondering about the answer to. Um, now, at the same time, this was not really a political question so much as it was a religious question. Uh, you see, is it lawful for us? The word lawful there, that's not Caesar's law. That is the law of Moses. They are asking if it is a sin for them to pay taxes. They are asking if it is a sin. M lastly and most importantly, this question is framed in such a way that Jesus gets locked into a very black and white yes or no answer. And the reason they do that is because either answer Jesus gives, whether it's yes or no, is going to get him arrested. It's kind of a, a no-win situation. Now, on one occasion, uh, I have two younger brothers. Uh, one of them's here. Hey, Sam. Um, Sam and my other brother, Michael, were arguing about what was going to be on the television next. Uh, so debated back and forth, couldn't figure it out. So finally, my brother gets a coin and he says, OK, Sam, heads I win, tails you lose. No matter what happens, wasn't good for Sam, was it? It's a no-win situation. So that's the kind of thing that they're trying to lock Jesus into. They're trying to pin him on the horns of a dilemma. So here's, here's how it works. If Jesus says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, they're immediately going to turn around and they're going to say, look at this guy. He's a Roman sympathizer. This guy doesn't believe in the, the Jewish people. He, he likes the Roman government better than, than the Jews. He values the government over God. And if they do that, Jesus is going to lose the support of the people who were expecting the Messiah to come and set himself up as an earthly king. Right? So if they can prove that Jesus loves the Romans and isn't going to overthrow the Romans, well, he's not the Messiah anyway. And if Jesus loses the support of the people, remember back in verse... 19, it said they wanted to lay hands on him right then and there, but they couldn't because of the people. So if Jesus loses the support of the people, they can arrest him and kill him. We're going to see that actually happens in a few days, but that's for another time. On the other hand, if Jesus says, no, it is unlawful to pay taxes to Caesar, the Romans are going to come in and arrest him. The Romans basically cared about two things in their territories. We want there to be peace, we want our taxes. 
All right, so if Jesus comes out and says, um, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, basically he's saying, hey, here's an entire people group that lives under Rome, we should stop paying taxes. It's a revolutionary act. Uh, and Jesus is going to get arrested for saying that. Um, another element here to it, Luke doesn't record this, uh, but in Matthew and Mark we find out that the Pharisees actually went to a group called the Herodians to make sure that they were there listening to what Jesus said. And you can probably see the word Herod there in that name Herodians. These were people who were supportive of the Roman government, so they were literally right there waiting for him to make a move that would lead to him getting arrested. Just uh, take in the suspense. <laughs> now, before we move on and look at Jesus' answer, notice, uh, I think, something hypocritical about these religious leaders. As upset they were that they were under the thumb of Rome, look how quick they are to run to the Roman government to solve their religious problem. All right, instead of, instead of praying to God or you know, and they already tried to beat Jesus in the debate. They, they're just running straight to Rome. They're going to use the sword of the secular government to accomplish a religious goal. They're not the last ones to try that. So, let's move on and take a look at Jesus' answer here. Um, he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. So, point number one, uh, before we get into the answer part, notice that Jesus uh, sees right through our duplicity, or right through their duplicity, that is. Now, we as sinners are extremely prone to deception, right? We can lie to other people very easily. We can fool other people. And we're even better at fooling ourselves and hiding our sin. But we cannot hide our sin from God, who sees right through it. Now, Jesus' answer is in two parts, right? Give to Caesar what is Caesar, and give to God what is God's. So, because the projector isn't working, uh, I'm just going to fold this. Check it out. Here's a denarius. All right, it looks a lot like coins do today, where on one side, you've got somebody's face stamped into it. In this case, it is Caesar's face. You see, he's got, instead of the sweet George Washington wig, he's got that, like, olive thing that they used to have. So it's got Caesar's face stamped right into the coin. It bears his image. Um, so Caesar, therefore, gets to decide the terms and conditions of the use of his coins. Furthermore, the Jewish people, as resentful as they were to be under the thumb of the Roman government, uh, they benefited from living in Rome. The, um, the religious leaders, when they went to collect the temple tax, used Roman coins to do it. All right, so they lived in Rome, they participated in the Roman economy, and they benefited from it. So in a way, they were kind of hypocrites for asking if it was unlawful to pay the tax because... Yeah, they're, they should because they're participating in the Roman economy in other ways. Um, so Jesus points that out. Uh, because they benefit from using Roman money, they should pay the tax to the Roman government. So that's, that's the first part of Jesus' answer. 
Moving on to the second part, if you picture a coin that's got Caesar's face stamped into it, right, that means it's Caesar's coin. What in all the world has God's face stamped onto it? Anybody? We do. That's right. Human beings do. Human beings have God's face, his image, stamped right into us. Uh, look at Genesis 1.27. Uh, it'll be up on the screen here. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So that means that each one of us, male and female alike, are made in God's image. We are made in his likeness. Um, so because God created us and because we have his face stamped onto us in a way, we belong to him. Um, being made in the image of God is something that we're going to talk about more in depth here in a minute. Um, but for now, it means that we have sort of a family resemblance to God, which is a really cool thing. Um, so on top of that, not only did God make us in the first place, but he sustains us day to day. Um, so the conclusion here is that we owe God our very selves. Uh, Jesus' point is something like, sure, we owe the government our taxes, go ahead and pay them, but we owe God everything, everything. We should live our lives in obedience to God. So how did this answer go over? Let's take a look at the result here. They were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people, and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. He shut him up again. It's not the last time it's going to happen either. So why did this answer work? So on the one hand, he said, hey, we benefit from the government. You should pay your taxes. So the Romans at this point, they're like, okay, we're cool. You're going to pay your taxes, going to not start a revolution. Don't care. Uh, so they're good. Uh, but why did it not upset the people? Remember, they were... Um, wanting Jesus maybe to come out and say, no, 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 we need to overthrow the Romans. And he didn't say that. So why were they okay? It's because um, Jesus showed them that they had deeper commitments than just the government. You know, they were tired, perhaps, of being just cogs in the big Roman machine. But God showed them that they had a deeper purpose and a deeper dignity because they were made in the image of God, and they were able to recognize that Jesus' answer was true and profound. So people were happy, Romans are happy, spies are shut up, problem solved. Uh, next week, we are going to learn uh, that the Sadducees are next to try their luck at stumping Jesus. Spoiler alert, it doesn't go well. <laughs> doesn't go well for them. Now, before we move on, uh, there's a minor point of application here. Um, these passages where Jesus is in the temple discussing and teaching and debating and answering, they're, they're some of my very favorites in the Bible, actually. I relate to them a lot. Uh, they show that Jesus has answers for our deep questions. The spies may have come and they might have asked this question. They might have been disingenuous. They might not have meant it. But the people who were there might have legitimately wondered about this sort of thing. Uh, and Jesus gave them a good and true answer. Um, so in the same way, uh, I think we all have doubts and, and questions, if we're honest. Uh, but we know that if we come to those, um, 
or come to Jesus with those in a godly way that he will give us a good answer. Uh, James 1 verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, uh, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. So that wisdom is there for us for the taking. All we have to do is ask for it. So the next part uh, here that I want to talk about is I really want to dive uh, a little deeper into what it means that we are made in the image of God. That was the, the key theological point in Jesus' answer, is that we are made in the image of God, so we owe God everything. Uh, and I want to tell you what that means, and I want to show you what happened to mankind as made in the image of God throughout the big picture story of the gospel. So, to be made in the image of God uh, refers to some things that we are, some things that we are in our being. Uh, it means we are special. Uh, we're set apart from the animals. It means that we are creative, uh, and all of us are creative in one way or another. It means we're intelligent. It means we are dignified. It means we are valuable. Genesis 9, verse 6 says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. So murder is wrong because mankind is inherently valuable, because we are made in the image of God. That means that anybody from like a small little fetus to a king, equal worth before God because they're all made in God's image. So no matter what, whether we're, we're disabled or, or, or whole or Olympic athletes or whatever else, valuable because we are made in the image of God. Those are some things that we are. Here are some things that we do. Um, the nine o'clock crew was quick to point this out. We are created to love God and love one another. We are in relationship with one another, and the, those relationships that involve love and forgiveness, that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God, is that we relate to each other. It also means uh, we are supposed to work, and we are supposed to create. Um, and it means that we are supposed to reign over creation as well. So basically, being made in God's image is uh, the essential thing that makes us human beings. All right, it comprises all of who we are and what we do. If you took me, for example, and you got rid of all of my hobbies, all of my interests, all right, all the things I like to do, put me on an island somewhere away from family members and got rid of all my uh, relationships, what I would be at the bottom of all that with everything else taken away is a person made in the image of God. It doesn't get any more basic than that. It doesn't get any more essential than that. Um, it doesn't get any more essential than that. So let me tell you a story uh, about what happened uh, with mankind being made in the image of God. And those of you who are familiar will be able to recognize this is just the big picture gospel story. Um, we know uh, that God made the world good. You see, like, because our projector's working, y'all don't get to see this, but I had a bunch of these, uh, this sweet chart that has too much text on it and too many colors. 
so I'm going to try to explain that to you using words here. We'll see how well that goes. Um, but basically, God is up here, right? And God creates everything. He makes the world, the universe, and everything in it. Um, and he reigns over it. But here's the thing. He picks mankind to kind of go in the middle. He's going to do his reigning through us. Um, it's like, almost like a mirror. You imagine a mirror, and, and God is the source of light. We are going to reflect God's love to the rest of creation. All right, this is the original intent. Um, we read earlier from Genesis 1.27 uh, that says, God created man in his own image. Well, the verse before that says, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over every creeping thing that creeps along the earth. Um, so we are supposed to reign in God's place almost. So uh, we have God up here reigning through mankind over creation. He takes Adam to kind of serve as our representative uh, and that's how all of us today here living in 2019 uh, were linked to Adam in creation is because Adam is our representative. And we all know, what did Adam do? Anybody? Sinned. Sinned, right? Uh, this guy lived, a, he lived hundreds of years, right? He had kids. He walked with God. He's remembered for one thing, uh, screwing everything up. What are you going to do? So what happened was Adam and Eve decided that they did not need God in the picture. They kicked him out. They decided we are going to make ourselves kind of the center of the universe, and we're going to rule creation not the way God tells us to, but just whatever way we want to do. And we see that when that happened, creation became cursed and corrupted. Um, God says uh, to Adam in Genesis 3.17, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. And then later on he says, Dust you are and to dust you will return. So because mankind rejected God as king, all right, uh, he goes on, he doesn't stop reigning creation, he just corrupts it. Instead of reigning it like God would the right way, he corrupts creation. Uh, and we don't have to look far to see examples of this. There's pollution, there's war, rampant destruction, relationships torn apart. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of the corruption that mankind has done because we have rejected God. And it's not just Adam, you know, thousands of years ago who, who did this. We do it too. So because of the fall... We are united with Adam through disobedience. So it's all of us together. Um, if we're using the mirror analogy, uh, the mirror that was once pristine and clean and reflective is now shattered and marred. Now it's important, that's what the image of God looks like now, today, in the world. Shattered, marred, messed up, distorted. Uh, it's important to recognize, in spite of all those things, it's still there. It's not completely destroyed. It's just a little messed up or a lot messed up. 
And we all know that this isn't the end of the story. Um, God, in his goodness and mercy, uh, sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross and pay the penalty for human sinfulness. When he did that, uh, he created a way for the image of God to be restored in us. Uh, you see, Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the perfect example of what humanity should be, should have been from the beginning. Um, he's the perfect example of humanity. Um, the issue for us sinners is how do we, with our broken image, get united to Jesus in his perfect image? And the answer is faith and baptism. Faith and baptism. Galatians 3, 26 through 27 says, For all of you are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the faith part. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Two things, baptism and faith. Um, Paul in Romans further says, We who have been buried with Jesus through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Um, see, baptism um, is no good without faith. It's the faith that saves us. But baptism is an important symbol of our union with Christ. You see, when we dunk somebody under that water, it symbolizes the fact that their old self is dead and gone and buried with Jesus. And when we raise them up out of the water, it symbolizes the new life that they have being united to Jesus in his resurrection. Uh, those of you who were here last week got to see two baptisms happen, which was super exciting. Um, so, because there's a group of people here on earth who have been united with Jesus through faith and baptism, again, it's back to almost how it was in the beginning. God is on top. Creation is down here. God is reigning through people, but this time he's reigning through the church that has Jesus at its head. Uh, and he is, we are reigning over creation. Uh, that is awaiting recreation. Because you see, we can look around and we can still see the lingering effects of the fall. And we can tell that creation is still groaning to be recreated. And that is going to happen someday in the future. God is going to wipe the slate clean, but it's going to look how it looks now. Him reigning through Jesus with us united to Jesus through faith over creation. I guess the, the, the big point there is that Jesus is the perfect manifestation of humanity as created in God's image. We look to him as our example and our leader, uh, and we need to be conformed to his image to be conformed to God's image the way it was supposed to be. It's only five till 11, and I'm on to the application part, so I'm doing pretty good, I think. <laughs> the um, first point of application, I hate to say it, guys, it's pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. Um, April 15th is coming up, just a couple months away. Now, the first area of application is submit to the government. Um, 
Romans 13, 1 and 2, Paul says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those with which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So, number two, submit to the government, obey the law. Obey the law. Um, pretty straightforward. Next, pray for your leaders. Pray for your leaders. First Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2 say, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And I'll tell you what, y'all, living in this country in 2019, that last part that Paul said we should pray for is happening right now all around us. Um, we can live tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity because persecution in this country is basically zero. I mean, the worst thing we have to worry about is maybe our friends reject us or maybe there's a lawsuit. Maybe. Odds are slim right now. Um, for comparison, Christians in, in China, for example, uh, when they go out to eat at a restaurant, they can't fold their hands and bow their heads and say a nice prayer because they will get arrested. They will get busted for being Christians for doing that. Instead, they just uh, they pray and they look each other in the eye and they act like they're just having normal conversation, but really they're praying. They can't even pray out in the open. So, number uh, the... The point here, continue to pray for our leaders so that we can continue to have the uh, ability to lead tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. Um, lastly, uh, we are called to obey God rather than man. Uh, this submission to the government has a definite stopping point. It is when the government commands us to do something that God tells us not to do, or the government tells us to stop doing something that God tells us to do. So when Peter and the apostles were arrested for preaching in Jesus' name, and they told them, don't preach anymore in this name, Peter said to them, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. So just as Jesus taught the Jewish people that we have a higher purpose than just being citizens uh, of the kingdom of earth, we belong to God. And that's the second sphere of application this morning, is to give your life to God. The very first uh, step in that, if there's anyone here this morning who is not yet a Christian, not yet a believer, the very first step to give your life to God is to confess and repent from your sins. 1 John 1, 9 tells us, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he's able to do that because he accepts Jesus' sacrifice on the cross on behalf of sinners like me and like you. Uh, but we have to turn away from those sins. And number two is we have to trust in Jesus' sacrifice in our behalf. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That kind of belief that John is talking about is not just, yes, I believe as a strict 
historical fact that Jesus died on a cross. It's that Jesus' death on the cross is paying the penalty for my sin. That's the kind of belief that John is talking about here. Um, so that is, that is for people who have never become Christians before. A lot of us here have already done those two things, are already Christians. Um, so for us, giving our lives to God means participating in the life of the church. Participating in the life of the church. Uh, the church is sustained by two ordinances uh, that Jesus gave us. The first is baptism. We've talked a little about baptism already. We saw two baptisms happen last week. And number two is the Lord's Supper, uh, which we're going to have an opportunity to take here momentarily, where we commemorate Jesus' death and reflect on his significance for our lives. The other way that we as believers participate in the life of the church is by fulfilling the uh, five functions of the church. The five functions of the church. The first one is discipleship. Discipleship. That is when through Bible study, um, and oftentimes this happens in small groups, we become more like Jesus by obeying his commands. Uh, the second one is fellowship. That is where believers are able to meet together to encourage one another and to help each other overcome sin. So those two things, I'm pleased to report, are happening at the Ridge in small groups. They're called uh, life groups. Uh, so if you are not in a life group this, this morning, uh, ask yourself if you are participating in the life of the church in the areas of discipleship and fellowship. And I encourage you to get involved in the life group. If you have questions about that, talk to David Bird when he gets back, or you can check out the wall uh, where you can see all the different life groups and when they meet. Uh, the third and fourth area, uh, third and fourth function of the church, that is. One, two, three, four, five. Ah, there's six functions of the church. My bad. All right, stay tuned. There's a bonus one. Um, but the next two, for that matter, are service and worship. So service is uh, when we take care of each other, we do acts that, that help other people and the church. So that happens. That's happening right now with people who are serving our, our, young, our, our young children uh, in the back there. Uh, it happens on Wednesday night. I've got a great team of Wednesday night volunteers who serve our students. Um, worship happens this morning. John led us in worship through music, John and the, the team. Um, so that stuff is happening here at the Ridge, is, is, is my point. Um, prayer. Prayer is a tough one sometimes. Uh, it can be difficult to set aside time in the day to, to really communicate with God. And sometimes we feel like we have to use really formal language to talk to God, and it's hard to come in and out of prayer. Um, my suggestion, uh, this is going to sound like a joke, but it's true. Pray to get better at prayer. Pray to get better at prayer. Uh, this goes back to kind of what James was saying, that if you lack wisdom, you just ask God, and he gives it to you. So if you're lacking wisdom on prayer, pray for more wisdom to be able to pray more. Um, that has worked in my life. Uh, it took years, but I am way better today in my personal prayer life than I was when I started. And I'm not trying to brag. I'm just saying God works when we pray. God works when we pray. And number two, we're having the elder-led prayer gathering this Wednesday night. So if, like, be there for that. Um, <laughs> it's a cool time. If we had a big group of people coming together to pray for this church, uh, 
God would be able to do some really cool things, I think. So that's happening this Wednesday, 7 o'clock, right, Isabel? All right. Uh, the last one's the scariest. It's, it's the big E word, uh, evangelism. Isabel said earlier, 95% of Christians never share the gospel with people. And I'll tell you what, uh, yeah, that, that's me for like most of my life. Oop, that was a voice crack, so that means it's time for me to drink water. Hold on. If that were a can of soda, it'd be some great marketing for them, huh? But evangelism is hard. It is scary. It is difficult. All right, but I'll tell you what. This training we've got coming up on March 23rd, uh, I really encourage all y'all to be there for that. Um, we're going to teach you techniques that, that took me from knowing the gospel, but not really being able to put it in words or explain it very easily, to I could probably draw it out right now for you. Um, it makes it a lot easier. Um, And yes, as, as part of this training, we are going to be going door-to-door uh, -door with the express purpose of trying to share the gospel with people who haven't heard before. Uh, and that might be a, a, a turn-off to a lot of people. It sounds scary. It sounds salesman-y. Um, sounds fake. Uh, but I promise it's not any of those things. We can help y'all. Um, and this is more of this is going to happen at the training. Uh, but it doesn't have to sound unnatural when you do it. Um, I think the, the biggest uh, obstacle to this that, that people have uh, with evangelism is the fear that it might be awkward. Not just a little awkward, like, but like deeply, painfully awkward. Like something could go horribly wrong, right? Um, and that, that kind of fear, I compare to a, a kid who's getting on a roller coaster that he doesn't want to be on, right? You put the kid in the roller coaster, you pull the big level, lever down, he goes up the roller coaster, and the whole time he's like, ah, I don't want to do this, oh, this is terrible. And then he gets over the hump and goes down the hill, and he's like, oh, wow, this is actually a lot of fun. It's the same with this door-to-door -door stuff. You just got to get out there and do it, uh, and you find out that it's actually kind of fun. You're never going to see these people again anyway, probably. What are you worried about? It's great practice for your friends that you have a real relationship with, all right? So get all your awkward out on strangers, and then you can actually have something intelligent to say <laughs> to <laughs> people uh, who you meet with on a regular basis. So for real, y'all, if this isn't in your calendar, uh, it should be. It should be. Um, well, look at that. It's 11:12, and y'all survived. <laughs> I survived. Um, in a moment here, uh, John and the team are going to come up and uh, are going to lead us in a time of uh, worship as we take the Lord's Supper together.